0: No, that's good. If you have or are currently serving in armed forces, would you stand up this morning? Let's give a hand to those who've done so. Thank you very much. As you can tell, those are the ones that were able to stand. There are many who couldn't, right? And there are a lot of families that, for us, Veterans Day is a day off, right? Kind of like Memorial Day. But for many families, it's a very sobering reminder of what the cost was. And there's aunts and uncles and brothers and sisters and dads who are no longer here as a result of that. So uh, I always like, if I see somebody with a hat, I always say, hey, thank you for your service. Which is interesting, because I'm older now. And they look at me like, hmm. You know but uh if you if you see someone today, thank them for their service, okay, let's pray this morning, Father, as we come this morning, we thank you uh for people who have given and served, and it has been a dear cost, Lord. We are hopeful that you are the one who wipes away the tears and you make all things right. We seek you for the justice you could bring in that because. Much of what has gone on in history is not just. And so we we pause today and acknowledge that and give that to you in hopes that you can rectify much of that and hopes that you can also help us to have appreciative hearts. And we give that to you in your name. Amen. All right. Well, we're in in our series in Mark, the Gospel of Immediacy. Mark likes the word immediately, and we've been doing that. We're in chapter 11, so take your Bibles, go ahead and Turn there. Last week, we uh, saw Jesus enter Jerusalem in the triumphal procession, only to uh, leave and then return to Bethany, where he was staying. The next day, they returned to Jerusalem again. And on their way, we encounter the subject of the story of our story this morning. We're starting here with uh, verse 12. It says, On the following day, When they came from Bethany, he was hungry, this he being Jesus. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Now we're going to bypass verses 15 through 19. Uh, Those are the passages about Jesus cleansing the temple. Uh, And we're going to come back to that next week because the cleansing of the temple is encased in these fig tree analogies, all right? And there's a fig tree analogy before the cleansing, and then there's a fig tree analogy after. So we're going to look at those this week, and then we'll come back, we'll we'll pick it back up next week with Jesus cleansing the temple. So just to pick the story up, another night has come, uh, they, Jesus, and the disciples again go back to Bethany, then they head towards Jerusalem in the morning, once again passing the helpless or hapless fig tree. And it says this, as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Now there's two accounts of this, one in Matthew, one in Mark. Luke does not mention it. He has a, a different, thing that he writes up on Uh, in Matthew's account the fig tree withers instantly here in the Mark account it takes uh, a night bad roundup (laughs) just seeing if you're awake as a totality these verses really present problems for biblical scholars if you get into it and look it just creates all kinds of problems And, and many actually wish the story had never been included that's that's how intense it is, right? Let's look at those really quickly and see why. Number one, uh, it makes Jesus look capricious. Jesus is hungry and the tree does not give him what he wants, so he curses it. Doesn't that sound like us? Dumb tree, you know, zap. Okay, It just seems awfully arbitrary and petty, uh, not in keeping with Jesus' character. Number two, Those of us who are justice oriented, it seems highly unfair. Right? The fig tree could not help having figs because the text clearly says it was not the season for figs. So, how is the tree supposed to have figs if it's not the season for figs? So, how can it be cursed for something it couldn't possibly do? Uh, This was probably April or May when Jesus came walking through. Fig trees are in full leaf but they don't produce fruit until June. So uh, not only is it unfair, but on the flip side of the coin, it actually makes Jesus look ignorant, right? How does the Lord of the universe, the Messiah, not know how fig trees work? If he created them. Is he so dumb as to expect figs to be on the tree out of season? Or did he just have a senior moment being 30? Right, thirty-three. Uh, maybe this just calls uh, Jesus's credibility into question. Right? And then, number four, this is a destructive miracle. Uh, as such, it's one of the two. The other one is the pigs running into the sea. Remember, drowning uh, that, at that time with the demoniac, that are actually recorded in the gospels. The Expositor's Bible Commentary quotes the biblical scholar T.W. Manson as saying it is this story of the fig tree it is a tale of miraculous power wasted in the service of ill temper for the supernatural energy employed to blast the unfortunate tree might have been more usefully expended in forcing a crop of figs out of season as it stands it is simply incredible he was just blown away by this whole thing what he means is Why not just have the fig tree produce some figs, right? Like the miracle of the loaves and fishes? So much easier, so much more productive. Poor little fig tree would still be fine, right? Instead of smiting it, which he did. As you can tell, these small set of verses have created no small amount of consternation. And yet there's great wisdom located in them as well. Now, what's the answer? Just know this morning, I don't have it, all right? I just flat out, I've wrestled with this all week. I've got some suggestions for us and some ways we can go at it. But I think the secret to the puzzle is is located in the cleansing of the temple. And the two vignettes on the fig trees wrap themselves around them, right? So it's going to be a two-part uh, series here on this. So we'll look at the fig tree vignettes this morning. And then, like I said, we'll come back to the cleansing of the temple next week they're connected, which is the temple is the core object lesson uh, next week. So let's look at this again, all right? Let's, let's just go back through it. So it says, on the following day, when they came from Bethany, that being Jesus and the twelve disciples, he being Jesus was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Now skip down in your Bibles down to uh, verse 21. And as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. So before we take a look at the significance of the fig tree withering and Jesus cursing it, let's look at the significance of fig trees in general. Because for us, fig trees hold no meaning whatsoever, right? We don't even know what a fig tree is. We, don't, we wouldn't know if we walked by one or bumped into it, right? And most Americans don't eat figs, right? And so we're like, hmm? you know, some Americans eat figs. Not most Americans, Jan, sorry. Okay, so here's a picture of a fig tree. Whoops, there we go. Uh, they can be big like this. They could be the size of an apple tree, uh, you know, if you think of an apple tree, that can be that size. When they get large, they get like this. And uh, the fig tree holds very symbolic and prominent place in the minds of Middle Eastern people, especially Israel, all right? It's, it's, if you go through the Old Testament, you are going to see fig trees mentioned all over the place, especially in the prophets. Uh, it is used both as a sign of security and also as a sign of peace. So let's let's just look at a couple of these. This is in 1 Kings chapter 4. It says, And Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan even to Beersheba, every man under his vine and under his fig tree all the days of Solomon. So it was a sign of the reign of Solomon that every person had the luxury, the ability, the, the peace, to be able to rest under the fig tree on their property. right? If you look in Micah, it says, but they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. And so over and over, you can look these up yourselves. Just look up, go in your concordance or go whatever Bible app program you use, look up fig trees, and you'll find all kinds of these like you went, wow, I never realized how prominent fig trees were connected in terms of the blessing of God. And likewise, you can flip it and uh, uh, the picture of a dead fig tree, here's a picture of a dead one, just as a healthy fig tree was a sign of God's protection, abundance, and prosperity, so a dead one was a sign of God's judgment and removal of blessing. So you can find these verses uh, located all through scripture as well. It says, when I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the tree, even the leaves are withered, and what I gave them has passed away from them. So it's this idea of barrenness and being stripped and having nothing to eat. In Joel 1 7, it says, It was laid waste, it has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree it has stripped off their bark and thrown it down their branches are made white it's kind of the picture of a shattering right the bark's blown off of it and the and the tree is is blown apart so what this means is that a fig tree along with grapevines there's a lot of uh, illustration object lessons that God uses both in the old and new testament but a fig tree is seen as a portent right <clears throat> and That's not a word we use all the time. So what is a portent? Here's what a portent is. A portent is a sign or a warning that something, especially something momentous or calamitous, is likely to happen. Israel is often referred to as the fig tree of God. So when you read these verses, you find that connection in Jesus in Matthew 24, which is the, Matthew 24 and 25 is the end times prophecy side of it. Jesus makes this correlation between Israel and the fig tree. Uh, let me get there. It says this, From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. And so also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And so Jesus is talking about when Israel as a nation begins to bud and sprout again. We know that Israel was reconstituted as a nation in 1948, right? Do the math. You can kind of see where this is all coming from. But the picture there that God uses is the fig tree as a correlation to Israel. So we'll come back to this whole conversation of the fig tree being important for Israel next week. But I wanted to just lodge this in your mind so you're thinking that way. You can look at these verses and kind of wrestle with them this week along with me uh, on how they're connected. Not only is the fig tree important, but Jesus also uses it as an object lesson in faith for the disciples here. As Peter points out, or pointed out to Jesus, how the fig tree was withered according to the words that Jesus had spoken, uh, Jesus responds, and he says this, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Now at first this is kind of a jump right, so launch, because Jesus goes, Peter says, hey, Lord, look at the tree, and he says, and I tell you, so he launches from what they can actually, so we don't have a withered fig tree here, right, we don't see it, but they would have instantly realized he's talking about that, and then he jumps to, to this, have faith in God, truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, now, The location of this was probably on the Mount of Olives, like we talked about before, somewhere in the neighborhood of Bethany or Bethphage, those two towns that are up on the top of the Mount of Olives. Um, And what's interesting is on a clear day from the top of the Mount of Olives, you can actually see the Dead Sea. So the illustration would have been right there. Say to this mountain, Mount of Olives, be picked up and thrown into the sea, and they would have literally had the picture standing right there, uh, as he was talking. And then Jesus adds this, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you'd received it, and it will be yours. Now, this just gets muddier and messier right here. This was no help to me, and I'll let you in on the mess, all right? Uh, these two verses are kind of the cornerstone or the anchor stone. Of the prosperity gospel, okay. So if you've ever watched TV, if you have ever watched a prosperity gospel person, this is the name it claim it. This is if you believe. If you didn't get it, it's because you didn't believe it, or you had doubt in your heart, right? And you don't know how to pray. And everybody's you know tossed and turned and gotten wiped out over those verses, and it's created quite a debris field in in the Christian life. It, and it it's really hard when you're trying to wrestle with that, you know, because you just have to believe in your heart, right? That's what the verse says. And if it doesn't happen, you just didn't believe enough, or, like I said, you gave room for a seat of doubt, cast out your doubt, believe that you already received it. You've, you've, you've probably seen or heard those phrases, right, on TV. So these verses have a debris field to them. They're complicated, Not because Jesus complicates them, because our sin complicates them, right? So should we just throw them out, right? Like some of these guys, let's just get rid of this. This Why did this story ever get included? Just, you know, leave that part out and we could move on. My answer is absolutely not. Absolutely not. Jesus here uses two incredible illustrations, all right? And this is where you're going to get the farm boy from Wisconsin. Let's just be practical, all right? Let's just take it for what it's worth. The withering of the fig tree by his word of faith and the casting of the mountain of the sea are illustrations of believing him and that God hears the prayers of his people. Remember Israel at this time. Remember what was going on in Judaism. They prayed, but it was perfunctory. It was for, they didn't really believe when they were praying, but they knew how to pray very formal prayers. And it says that the Pharisees marched around the streets in their phylacteries and all their things, and they prayed prayers, but it was all for show. They didn't really think God was going to answer. Now, there were believers. There were people there that did. But much of uh, what was going on in that day and era was really charade. And Jesus is trying to get his disciples, who are still coming to grips that he's the Messiah, with launching their faith in him totally. And believing that they also could produce miraculous things if they trusted him. So you've got this, this mix going on here. Uh, it's, it's still hard because many have been traumatized by these verses. I prayed. I really believe. God did not come through for me. Therefore, I'm done with God. And, and there are all kinds of people in the Mill Creek area who are done with God. I prayed. It did not happen. He did not answer. I'm not coming back. Okay? We call them the, the nuns now. Right? They're not N-U-Ns, but N-O-N-E-S, the nuns. they what affiliation are you? None. Right? Because they've been messed up by these verses. Question this morning is what do you do with such a debris field like that? Because of this type of Gordian knot situation, do do we just throw the baby out with the bathwater? And is is there a healthy take? Well, Not saying I have the answers to this because I don't, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, But a couple of things that might really help. Number one, I think Jesus meant exactly what he said. okay, Straight up. And I think it was meant to believe in him and I think we're supposed to put our faith in him and I think we're supposed to pray to him and I think when tough things come and we have those mountains and those Gordian knots and those things, we're supposed to take it to him. A couple things that help balance this out. Uh... Let's remember, number one, that God is not obligated to satisfy my selfishness. All right? Dear God, please let me win the lottery. Hmm, not so much, okay? Um, Remember James? We did a study on James. This speaks to this very eloquently. Let me read it to you. James chapter four. What causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Is it not this that your passions are at war within you? Anybody ever have their passions at war within them? you desire and you do not have so you murder you covet and you cannot obtain so you fight and quarrel you do not have because you do not ask and then here comes the caveat to that you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions it's not to draw you closer to god it's so i can get what i want and do what i want and and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. That's James chapter 4, 1 through 8. I read that because that speaks directly to the problem of asking with what? Wrong motives. It's not that I'm not asking. It's just the reason why I'm asking. And let's always know and remember that God sees our hearts. Right? He understands what our motive is. And often, that's what God goes after. At this stage of the game, for most of us, it's not what we're doing, it's why we're doing what we're doing. Right? God is fine going through it with a fine-tooth comb and getting the nits out, so to speak, of our spirit. Number two, I think it's really helpful, let's remember the kingdom. Jesus is talking about repent. Why? Because the kingdom of God is at hand. Uh, not my will be done, but what? Your will be done. We can and we must pray, but the results must be left into the hands of God. May your will be done, what? in the Lord's prayer, on earth as it is in heaven. A lot of times we save ourselves a lot of trauma. We just say, you know, God, what's your best in this? What, what, what do you really want to see come out of this? I can tell you what I want. I'm not sure if it's right. But I'll throw it your way, and I'll give it to you. I'd really like that to happen. And if that's your will, then bring it on. Let's do it. If it's not, where do you want to take it? And a lot of times that keeps us from getting wedged into a spiritual corner that we can't get out of. You say, wow, that's hard to pray that way. Even Jesus prayed that way in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember what he said? Lord, it, it, he said to his father, if this cup can pass me, okay. That'd be a good thing. But he said, not as I will, but as you will. Right? He submitted to that. Father, remove this cup. And the answer was no. And one of the things that we've got to be okay with is that sometimes an answer to prayer is no. Right? That sounds backwards, but it's right. An answer to prayer is no. God's a good dad. He will say yes, he'll say no, he'll say wait. Actually, I find wait harder than no. Anybody with me? Right? Like, because then how long? Well, that's not no. You No, just patience. Aha! Right? Okay? Number three. Believing faith and prayer are huge. Hebrews says this. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen; for it, by for by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what was seen was made not out of things that are visible. Ex Nihilo, God created out of nothing. Right? It says that's by faith. Hebrews eleven six reminds us: without faith, it's impossible to please Him. Whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. And so we are to approach Jesus and there's nothing wrong with coming boldly as long as you're coming humbly, right? Um, Being precocious, I'm not, there's there's a couple of parables that even counteract this, right? Where there was the widow who came after the judge and uh, there was the man who came to his neighbor at night and said, hey, I need bread. My buddy showed up and the guy said, go away. I'm in bed. I'm, we're sleeping. Get out of here. And But it says because he was so insistent, the neighbor got up not because he wanted to help his friend, but because he wanted to get rid of him. So he gave him the bread and he used that as a positive way to approach God in prayer. So sometimes we're supposed to pester God. How do you know the difference? I think you got to ask him. Okay. And I think if it sits in your craw and you just got to keep approaching, you've got to keep coming after it till God tells you to let it go. Uh, <clears throat> Interestingly enough, our two-year campaign is called what? Move the... <laughs> Irony struck me as I was going through that this week. Where we're praying over the next two years that God will allow us the privilege of seeing him work through us in sacrificial giving so that the gospel can be speeded be, Speed ahead and be honored. Is that a godly prayer? Yeah, Yeah, I think it is. Right? That's a a big mountain to get out of the way. So let me just shift gears a little bit and talk about another mountain. Right? Can I do that? So leave that mountain there. We'll shift to another mountain. This one, eminently more practical. And this one I do know the answer to. Okay? (laughs) This one I think we can relate to, and this is one I think we can agree needs to be moved, and we need God to move it. What mountain am I talking about? The mountain I'm talking about is the mountain of unforgiveness. Ooh. You say, where did you pull that rabbit out of the hat? And whenever you stand praying... These are the verses following those verses that nobody ever quotes. Wherever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. Jesus says, you want to pray big miraculous things? Well, then why don't you do that? Forgive people from their heart. Ask me for help to do that. And while you're praying, nothing wrong with praying, but if someone comes to mind that you have a grudge against, someone you hold an offense with. By the way, I love going through that this week. It was a delight. I thought you should join me. Someone you have something against. Forgive so that your Father in heaven may also forgive you question to ponder. How big do you think the mountain of unforgiveness is in a room this size? How big do you think that mountain is? And how much does unforgiveness hinder our prayers? When we talk about wanting to pray but we don't, Why are we hindered? And this unforgiveness, this mountain of unforgiveness that we're talking about right here, and holding a grudge, is not far from home. Matter of fact, it's in our homes. Why do you think it's so hard to get couples to pray together? I've irritated the heck out of you with the thing, and I know that. And I've told you, when you start praying together, I'll quit preaching on it. And some of you have had real victories in that. And some of you have come up going, you are driving me nuts. Right? And to that, I say thank you. Why, Why is it so hard? Let's be real here. Why is it so hard for us as couples to pray together? Single people just go along for the ride. Okay? Just go along for the ride. Why? It's because of the accumulated offenses and grudges against each other that can crush the spirit of prayer. Little by little, day by day, hour by hour, offense by offense, grudge by grudge. Right? And if we don't take care of that, that irritation becomes toxic. When irritation becomes toxic, it becomes bitterness. When bitterness takes hold, the heart goes out, and then we call that what? A divorce. Husbands, Peter talks to us about this. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, and that'll create all kinds of chaos in our culture today. Showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your what? Prayers may not be hindered. Why does God start with the guy? Because in God's eyes, the guy's the leader. What's he primarily responsible to do? Pray. What wipes out prayer? When his wife bugs him. Of course, that was only in the Old Testament. That never happens in the New Testament, so we're free, right? (laughs) Live with your wife in an understanding way. In other words, God's saying, get the bigger picture here. Again, How big is that mountain? How many of us sitting here this morning have offenses against our spouses? Boy, don't look to the left or right right now. And that mountain needs to be cast into the sea. You don't understand, Pastor Steve, they just keep doing it. How often am I supposed to forgive them? And here's my answer. As often and as much as Jesus forgives you. We have no idea how much this limits us in living a spirit-filled, Christ-centered praying life. Knowing human nature and knowing our ability and capacity to manipulate, I have something else to say on this, and I pray to the Lord Jesus that it's not true of us here at Northview. But just in case it is, I want to speak a word to abusers here because abusers often hide in the church. All right. If you use this, if you manipulate this, if you work this around to say, see, you have to forgive me. and you're flipping the tables on your loved ones to keep some kind of sick control over them, that's your idea of power. If you're nasty at home, you're wicked and evil to your wife and to your children, you rage and rule in anger and hostility, and might I add, insecurity, and then come to church looking all holy and spiritual as a cover-up for your wickedness, and your wife and children are too full of fear or terror, to mention a word, then I pray one of two things for you. I pray, number one, that you repent. I pray you repent deeply. I pray you repent now before God and quickly seek and get some help. Number two, if not, I pray that God would take you home. Hear me very clearly that he'd take your life. Let's put it in English. If you act like that behind the scenes and you are a man, you are not a man of God. You're a coward, right? That's the book of Hebrews says, For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful for those whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, if it is worthless and near to being cursed, and in the end it is burned. And then Hebrews goes on to say this, Though we speak this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. That's how I feel about us too. By the way, if you want to write this off, this isn't the only time Jesus said this. This is part of the core element of his teaching. Youth group, uh, Rob and them are going through Matthew right now, and they just walked through this. Jesus says, At the end of the Lord's Prayer, we know the Lord's Prayer, right? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us, old school, our trespasses, debtors, new school. Our trespasses, we forgive those who what? Trespass against us. That's a forgiveness passage, right? And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We know those verses well, right? What's the next two verses? These up here on the screen. You never hear those quoted very often either. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So here's the rubber meets the road part of the message this morning. So who do you need to forgive? Who do you need to forgive? Who irritates you? Let me help you with that. Who irritates you? Who bugs you? Who ticks you off? Who, when you're going through prayer, suddenly pops in your mind and keeps you from praying? That would probably be a good place to start. Give it some thought. The results might be mountainous. Let's pray. Father, whether I have a right beat on this this morning or not, I'm not even sure. I would offer it to you as best I can. It has been a difficult week wrestling with this passage, not because the passage is so difficult, Lord, but we as humans are so capable of manipulating and twisting things that you've said and there's such a debris field around it that it almost renders the passage useless and yet it's not it speaks very profoundly of have deep deep faith in God you will remove hurdles that need to be removed and many of us have witness and testimony that you have moved incredible mountains in our lives so we come this morning Lord and we land on the forgiveness part We would admit to you that it's hard for us to forgive. It's so blasted easy to hold grudges. It's it's second nature just to be petty. Ticky-tack, one-upmanship, payback, revenge. We do return evil for evil. And as a result, our prayers get all bungled up. Our hearts get hard. And not a lot happens, Lord. And we are praying in this move the mountain, ironic that that's the title of it, for you to break through that the gospel would penetrate. And we suddenly realize this morning that probably has a lot more to do with how much we forgive the people in our lives so that we can pray than it is about whether you can or not. So this morning we stop very sobered. It's Not an easy thing for us very hard to let go we we want justice and if you aren't going to do it we're going to do it ourselves we let go of that this morning help us in this struggle to forgive those who you tell us we need to forgive and we ask for this grace in your name amen